Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, The Boundless Compassion of God, today. So let's turn in our Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 to 13, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Gentile Faith. I want you to imagine our world. Billions of people inhabit this planet. Each one of the billions are made in the image of God. Each one is given the power to think and to reflect, to feel, to love and to hate, to experience relationships, to create, to dream about what is possible and even more. Each one is given the capacity to know something about God. Indeed, the God who created each one created each one to be unique and the God who made us is at all times ready, present to our consciousness, unless, of course, we suppress such a knowledge. People wonder about God. Billions of us do that. We all have some kind of an experience with God. It's, it's built into our souls. We sin, and everyone experiences some form of grace. No, no, I don't mean saving grace. I mean general grace or common grace. Each man or woman receives kindness from his or her creator. The sun shines on us, the rain waters the earth and causes it to flourish, and it provides us with food and resources for us to live. It is true that God is good to all. There's an easy tendency among Christians, Christians who have received a special grace, that is, the grace of forgiveness from sins and the grace of reconciliation with God, that we should look upon the non-Christian world and not see God's goodness expressed in his kindness to all. See, I think one of the easiest ways that Christians can engage with non-Christians is to simply ask them, tell me about your own spiritual life. Do they pray? Have they sensed God's presence? How? You know, I think this kind of a conversation can open up doors for the sharing of the gospel of Jesus and the offer that he makes to come and receive forgiveness and reconciliation. Well, we're studying the book of Jonah. You know, thus far, we've gotten no further than Jonah's call to go to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, and to cry out against it because of her sins. And Jonah has a sneaking suspicion that there may be more to this call than that. He suspects that God may be using this to show his kindness and mercy to the Assyrians, and Jonah wants none of it. And so he flees from the presence of the Lord, planning to go as far from Nineveh as was possible. See, I've often wondered what kinds of contacts Jonah would have had with Gentiles before that time. Had he ever had a significant dialogue with any? Had he ever experienced a friendship with one? Of course, we don't know, and to speculate does us no good whatsoever, but I only raise these questions because of the fact that all Gentiles that we find in this book seem more responsive to the creator of all things than does Jonah. And so today, let's take a look of a group of ancient sailors. We don't rightly know who they are or what nations they belong to, but as we will see, they did have some forms of religion. Yeah, they're ignorant of the one true God. That much has to be acknowledged. But we'll find something else about them, and I warn you, it might shock you. So again, the context. Jonah is trying vainly to flee the Lord's presence. He finds a ship going to Tarshish, he pays the fare for the journey and he gets on board. They sail west, hoping to get as far away as Spain. Uh, let's take up where we have left off. We come now to Jonah 1, 4-6. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, 
and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled a cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Let's begin with the beginning. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Now, the New International Version says the Lord sent a great wind on the sea which in our way of reading seems more understandable than saying the Lord hurled a wind onto the sea. But the ESV, which is a literal translation, that's what the original actually says. It says the Lord hurled a wind onto the sea. We're supposed to notice this word hurled because in verse 5, we find the mariners hurled the cargo of the ship into the sea. And then later in verse 12, we're going to notice that Jonah tells the sailors to pick him up and hurl him into the sea. And then in verse 15, we'll find that's exactly what the sailors did. They hurled Jonah into the sea. See, in each case, the word hurl refers to taking hold of something, throwing it into the ocean. And so we're supposed to get the idea that as Jonah is now fleeing from God, that God picks up the wind and throws it violently onto the sea. And the point is that whether it's the sea or the wind or the sailors or the boat or the fish, God has all things at his disposal. Jonah may be fleeing from God, but as we saw yesterday, you can't flee from God. And so God simply picks up the wind and throws it into the sea. And we need to stop and consider the ways in which God has all nature at his disposal. I love Psalm 147, 15 to 18. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls, yep, he hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Or you might think of Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does, according to all his will, among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? See, Jesus himself taught us that God extends his control over all of nature. Matthew 5.45, Jesus says that our Father makes the sun rise, and he sends the rain. Later, he says he feeds the bird, he clothes the lilies, he takes account of each falling sparrow, he even counts the numbers of the hairs of our head. You know, the book of Colossians, well, it goes even further. Chapter 117 says that in Christ, all things hold together. That means that moment by moment, all nature is held together. It's directed to act in the way in which it does. The movement of the earth around the sun, the seasons, the weather patterns, the birth of the baby deer, the emotions human beings feel, all things are constantly moved by the hand of God. There's not one thing he doesn't control. All nature moves at his direction. And so as Jonah seeks to flee God's presence, he's floating in a boat made of material that God has made. And the molecules continue to function as he directs. The sea is his ocean, and the wind which is in his storehouse at this moment is hurled from God's storehouse onto the ocean that he has made, creating a violent storm that might break the ship up. Uh, Now, please notice how different is this thought than the thought systems of modern man. See, we might say, oh, it's just bad luck to be caught out in the storm. And we might even say, look, there are scientific reasons for the storm. And of course, there are. 
But those scientific principles were created by God, and they continue to function moment by moment at his command. And the point is simple. This storm has occurred because the meticulously sovereign God has willed that it should occur and interrupt Jonah's plans. And by the way, when I say these things, which is clearly what the Bible teaches, are you encouraged by that? Or do you find yourself resisting this thought? I suppose it has all the world to do with whether or not you find pleasure in God's care of his creation. But nonetheless, God has hurled the wind onto the sea, and then, surprisingly, the mariners, the Gentiles, well, they cry out, each of them to his own God. You know, in the ancient Near East at this time, it was polytheistic. And that is, people believed in a number of different gods and goddesses. But there was a similarity that was found in all these forms of spirituality. I mean, for one, it was commonly believed that the gods had created order by defeating the powers of chaos. But these powers of chaos had not been ultimately defeated, and so the threat of chaos always was ready to make a comeback, constantly threatened human existence. And so one looked to the gods to drive the chaos back and to reestablish order. But the gods were fickle and not all-powerful. Who knows what might occur? And for these sailors, a storm at sea was not about God's sovereign control over nature. It was about a part of the gods and their continual fight against disorder and mayhem. And so they hurl the cargo of the ship into the ocean, and they keep crying out to the gods. They find out that Jonah is asleep, and they wake him. Call out to your God, they say. You know, it may well have been that in their way of thinking, you know, the combination of the gods, the God that each one knows, might all have banded together, and that might be enough to drive the chaos back. The more people praying to every sort of deity, increasing the number of gods involved, well, all of that might be enough to bring this chaos to heal. But of course, they can't know for sure. But in spite of this scene, one very clear picture emerges we see Gentile pagan sailors praying earnestly while Jonah, the prophet of the one true God, is fast asleep, praying not at all. What do we make of that? A donor recently wrote, I decided to give because your ministry is one that can be trusted when it comes to teaching the Bible. It's really that simple. Well, this past month as a ministry, we've placed an emphasis upon the critical importance of identifying Bible teaching you can trust. Well, this month, our hope is to reinforce the importance of not only identifying trustworthy teaching, but the importance of sharing those life-changing truths with others. This month, we've placed an emphasis on the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 11 for the purpose of restating our commitment to faithfully obeying the biblical charge to serve with all of our hearts and to teach the Bible with fervor. Our prayer is that you will join us in this effort. Your gifts, your prayers are critical in this day and for this purpose. To offer a gift today or to find out about our new initiative, the 1119 Fellowship, visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. All over the world, men and women created in the image of God pray. Now, I do know that when they pray, they pray to that which they do not know. But nonetheless, what accounts for the fact that they pray? 
You know, as has often been said, even atheists pray in foxholes or in storms on the sea or when their lives are in danger. I mean, the impulse built into the human soul is to pray. And yet how strange it is that the prophet of God needs a pagan ship captain to tell him what his spiritual duty is at this crucial hour. But with all the prayers to the gods, the chaos of the storm is not abating. And if the storm had continued, this ship would have joined the countless ships in times past and in the future that have been lost with all hands on board. And then at this moment of desperation, something very strange, that is, in our way of thinking at least, something strange occurs. Jonah 1.7 says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, you might say, ah, you know, these are pagan sailors, and they're undoubtedly filled with superstitions. I mean, after all, it's just a storm, and even if it is because of the sovereignty of God, you know, it's a stretch to think that someone is responsible for this storm. But you might remember that that back in the days of Joshua, after Israel was defeated in the battle of Ai, they actually cast lots to see who was responsible for the defeat, and the lot fell on a man named Achan. Or you might think of 1 Samuel 14, when God is not answering the prayers of Israel and the Israelites cast lots as to who has sinned, and then finally the lot fell on Jonathan, the son of the king. Well, what does all that mean? Of course, it's incorrect to assume that every time we encounter a storm or go through a hardship, that we have to cast lots to see who's to blame. But it's equally incorrect to assume that things just happen for no reason at all which seems to be the disease of modern people. You know, we have crude phrases that people repeat today. You know, I'll say it nicely, excrement just happens. No reason it just does. Bad luck, it sucks to be you. That's just how it goes. These pagan sailors, for reasons not explained in this book, have come to a very different conclusion. If the gods seem deaf to our prayers, it may be that someone on this ship has angered the gods so that they won't answer, and if that's the case, we're going to find out who it is. Casting lots is not explained, but however it was done, it was probably very little different than rolling of a dice. Proverbs 16.33 says the die is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so we have to assume then that these sailors believed that the gods through the system of lots, would tell them why they refused to fight on their behalf or to answer their prayers. That's their spirituality coming to the foreground. See, I don't know what you think about this. This is an awareness that spiritual events really do make their mark on the physical and natural world. See, I do know some Christians that seem relatively unaware of this. They live, as I like to call it, like practical deists. You know, the old deists believed that God created the world and then created the natural laws that govern the world, and then he simply allows the world to carry on by the laws without intervening. And that's why the ancient deists said they believed in God, but they didn't believe in miracles. They said God never shows up because, well, he never shows up. The world just carries on according to the laws of nature. But these pagan sailors thought differently. Let's keep reading. Remember, the lot has fallen on Jonah, and they assume that he's responsible for the storm. And in this case, they're right. So Jonah 1 verses 8 and 10 says, Then they said to him, Tell us on what account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. 
Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. You know, Jonah tells the sailor he's a Hebrew, which is how the Gentile nations would have called the Israelites. You know, he assumes that these Gentile sailors must have had some understanding, you know, that the Hebrew God was different from the gods and goddesses they served. And so he adds, being a Hebrew, I serve Yahweh, who's not one of the gods, but he's the God of heaven. You know, it's an interesting way to refer to God. We know that during the time of Daniel, when Daniel was, you know, taken to Babylon, whenever he speaks of his God in a way in which the Babylonians could understand, he calls him the great God of heaven. That would have been very meaningful to the Babylonians. See, I understand that among people who hold to polytheism, this is a concept that's readily understood. You know, those who believe in the God of the sun, you know, the God of the moon, and the God of, you know, the Nile River, the God of the creatures, the gods of the sea, the God of land, the gods of the mountains and of the plains, the gods that protect travelers, and the gods that cause mischief for travelers. That even though their world is filled with gods and goddesses of all sorts, that among all of them, there is a concept of a supreme being who rules them all, the creator, the one who alone rules from heaven. And says Jonah, that's the God I fear and worship. And in response, the men are terrified, and they say to him, what have you done? That is, why is it, if this is your God, that your actions don't reflect your beliefs? You see, says our narrative, Jonah has already told them at some time that he was fleeing from his God. And that must have made a conversation on the ship to pass the time. And somehow in the conversation, Jonah has told them he's fleeing his country at his gods. They must have made nothing of it, for it was possible to flee the gods. But if Jonah's God is the creator, that's not exactly possible. How could it possibly be that you claim this is your God, and at the same time, you make a show of fleeing from his presence? I mean, have you ever seen the reaction of pagans when they find a Christian who doesn't live according to his or her beliefs? Have you ever noticed that they let others get away with all sorts of things? But when a Christian acts in a hypocrisy, everyone sits up and takes notice. What? You're a Christian and you engage in sexual relations? What? You're a Christian and you've lied in this business deal? What? You're a Christian and you join with us using the same curse words we use? It never sits well with anyone, and it certainly didn't with these mariners. And so if you're fleeing from the Creator God, well, you'd better tell us the reason for that. What have you done to offend the Creator? And fascinatingly enough, Jonah never tells them. Instead, they're left to contemplate their options. So we keep reading in verses 11 to 13. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Notice, please, for this is crucial to our understanding of the entire book, that Jonah does not repent of his refusal to do what God has commanded him to do. Instead, and this theme is going to come up again in the next chapter and in the last, he would rather die than repent. Indeed, his willingness to die here 
is matched by some of his last words that are recorded in chapter 4, in which he says he is so angry at what has transpired, he simply wants to die. Last words of Jonah. He seems to think that his assignment from God is so distasteful to him that it would be better not to live. Again, we're left to contemplate his attitude against the attitude of the pagan sailors. Jonah may want to die, but they, they don't want him to die. From their vantage point, this man is a servant of the God of heaven, and the last thing they want to do is to offend the God of heaven by killing one of his servants. They are by now completely convinced this storm is the cause of the God of heaven against this one man, but to harm this one man is not for them to do. Where, may I ask, did this attitude come from? And where, may I ask, does this awareness of God come from sometimes in the most unlikely of places? Romans 1, 19 to 20, Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Every single human being, whether they are a believer in Christ or not, has an inner sense that God exists, that God controls the universe, and that God holds us accountable for our actions. Is that surprising to you? Well, if it is, you need to get out more, and you need to find individuals who have never known Christ and be surprised at the awareness of God. That should lead you to talking to them about Christ. John, you know, I hear perhaps every day about remarkable people who show mercy, kindness even at their own personal expense, but they don't claim to be Christians. Should that surprise us? It certainly should not. If we'd been reading our Bibles carefully, we would have found all manner of examples of just such a thing. Um, It's been called um, common grace, and uh, it's the kind of grace that God gives uh, apart from salvation. So there's the grace of salvation. That's a unique grace. But there is also a common grace. This is grace that is given uh, to people uh, even outside of Christ so that they can act mercifully and deal in ways which might astonish us. Um, This is a common dealing of God. It is because of his mercy. It's because of his grace given to all. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Boundless Compassion of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. To enhance and sustain the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, And to support your spiritual growth and that of your family members and friends, we've created the 1119 Fellowship Monthly Giving Program. The 1119 Fellowship was inspired by Deuteronomy 11, where we're compelled to love the Lord your God, to serve Him with all your heart and soul, to fix these words in your hearts and minds, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, teaching them to your children, talking about them at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. This is the heart of Back to the Bible Canada, and your becoming a member of the 1119 Fellowship supports Bible teaching you can trust, continuing to be available to you, your family, community, and country. 
Consider becoming a part of the Back of the Bible Canada 1119 Fellowship today. For more information or to join, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call 1-800-663-2425.